Ben, you can be seated, and as you do that, you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're heading out to Mosaic Kids, you can see Miss Antonia in the back. She's waving. If you're headed out to Mosaic Kids, first through third graders, or K through third graders, excuse me, you can go see Miss Antonia. She's in the back. You can walk down there. She's waving. She'll take you to where you need to go. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans 1, verses 16 through 17, and we have a lot of ground to cover. I know it's only two verses, but I cannot uh, overstate this. These two verses are dense, so much so that I could say that I have spent as much time in these two verses as I have in the rest of the letter to the church in Rome. And so I want us to really just dive into Romans 1, 16 through 17, because there is truth here that is captivating in its power. And we often lose sight of just how powerful the good news of the gospel is. And in Romans 1, 16 through 17, we get it with an unfiltered view. There's nothing that's covering up the glory of what Paul is trying to preach to the church in Rome. So this is really the thesis statement for the book of Romans, okay? And if I could sum up the truth of it, this is what I would say. Paul is saying in these verses this, the gospel, this good news that I have to tell you is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes because it provides the one thing that we desperately need. See, the gospel is good news because it provides the one thing that we desperately need. Let me read Romans 1, 16 through 17, and afterwards I'll say this is the word of the Lord. It's an invitation for you to respond and to say thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. So we want to thank him for that. So let me read Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. It's on the screen behind me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when Paul, this murderer turned missionary, has his life transformed by Jesus, he is captivated by the good news of the gospel. If we could leave that verse up, I want to keep that verse up there the whole time. Uh, uh, production so that we can just look at it together. Paul is captivated by the good news of the gospel, which is this, the good news that God saves and God reigns. This is the gospel we've been talking about over these past few weeks. The good news that God saves, meaning that he reconciles sinners to himself, that by nature we are born separated from God, and that a key part of the good news is that God has overcome this separation in Jesus Christ. So when Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news that he's talking about is that God saves sinners and that also God is restoring the world. The good news is that God saves and God reigns. God is restoring us and he is restoring the world around us. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Why does Paul say this? Why does he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? The word that he uses there, it says ashamed. This word has with it the idea that there would be some sort of physical persecution or physical suffering that would accompany the sharing of the gospel. It communicates a hesitancy to bear witness about the gospel because of what could happen to him. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed. I have no hesitancy in bringing the good news of the gospel to you. He's saying, I'm not ashamed, even if it means that I will be persecuted physically as a result. 
Now, for many of us, we don't have to share Paul's concern because the idea of physical persecution coming with our sharing of the gospel is not a part of our lived reality. But we might need to remind ourselves that we're not ashamed with the gospel because far too often we are intimidated, not by a sense of physical persecution that might come, but because of social awkwardness that can accompany sharing of the gospel. Maybe you have felt this, a sense of hesitation. I don't want them to think that I'm weird. I don't want to come across as strange. I don't want to be the creepy Christian. Paul is saying, listen, I have no hesitancy in bringing you the gospel. And why is this? Why does he have no hesitancy? He says, because it is the power of God for salvation. The power of God for salvation. See, the gospel is how God is accomplishing his purpose in the world. The good news of the gospel in its preached expression, in its proclaimed expression, is how God is going to change the world. And Paul is saying, I am not hesitant to bring the gospel to you, even if it will result in my suffering. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. You see, Paul has been confronted by Jesus Christ. He has been saved. He has been rescued. And having been rescued, what Paul is saying is this. If I lose everything, if I endure every means of physical persecution for sharing the gospel, I have no hesitancy, no regrets about it. Why? Because you will get to experience what I have experienced, which is the overwhelming power of salvation. See, that's what's captivated Paul. Paul hasn't been captivated by the fact that maybe being a Christian makes life a little bit easier. He hasn't been captivated by the good news that if you become a Christian, you'll get some good friends. He hasn't been captivated by the good news that being a Christian gives your life purpose or meaning. He's been captivated by this reality, that before God confronted him in Jesus, he stood separated from God. His sin kept him under the just judgment of God, and that when he was rescued, he He was pulled from that just judgment of God into fellowship with God, into forgiveness. And having experienced this transformation, Paul is saying, if it costs me everything to share what God has done in my life with you, that's a cost I'm willing to pay. I have no hesitancy to bring the gospel to you. Paul is saying when the gospel is preached, God uses it to powerfully work salvation. He wants people to experience the salvation that he's experienced. You know, oftentimes we think of the gospel as a message, as a message that kind of is dormant. But what Paul is talking about here is like, imagine the gospel is like a firework that's unlit, okay? And at the right time, in the right moment, the Spirit of God sparks that firework. And what seemed to be just a bland thing now explodes in a shower of light and salvation. This is what Paul is talking about. The gospel is like that. That when we hold it back, it can seem as if it's a dormant thing. But let me tell you, the more that you release through proclamation... The good news of the gospel, the more explosive its power will be felt in your own life and will be felt in the lives of those around you. Paul is saying, I have no hesitancy. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's how God saves people. It's how God saves people. This is how God has chosen to exercise his power in the world. And this word salvation... Paul only uses it to mean deliverance. Paul only uses this word in his letters to mean deliverance. It's freedom. 
It's deliverance. And deliverance from what? Well, it's deliverance from the curse of sin. And it's deliverance into God's better kingdom. Paul uses this word to talk about three kinds of deliverance. And if you're writing notes down, this would be good because we're going to talk about this through the letter uh, often because he uses the word salvation frequently. This deliverance is deliverance from the just judgment of God. And we have to start here and it makes us all uncomfortable. It makes us all uncomfortable, but Paul knows something that it is easy for us to forget. That by nature, we are born into this world under the just judgment of God. We are condemned before we have ever done a thing. Because we are in Adam, and Adam's sin, that sin is given over to us. And we are born into this world under the just and holy judgment of God. Because we have broken his law, we have rebelled against him, and we have rejected him. This means that Paul, when he was born into the world, when I was born into the world, we were born under wrath, under wrath, under condemnation, under judgment. And when Paul says this gospel is the power of God for salvation, where we have to begin is salvation begins by us being delivered from that just judgment. Now, we spend our whole life trying to distract ourselves from that reality. That one day, each and every one of us will stand before God and we will have nothing to give him but what Christ has given us. That's it. That's it. And Paul begins here. Deliverance. Deliverance from what? The just judgment of God. But what else? Deliverance from the terror of shame. Deliverance from the terror of shame. Maybe if you have a hard time imagining the just judgment of God, maybe you have an easier time imagining the way that shame corrupts and perverts and twists your life. Have you felt this? Have you felt the way that shame for hidden sin or shame for some past regret or sin that we have done or sin done to us, shame embeds itself in our life and for as long as it remains unchecked, it corrupts and it twists and it perverts, it saps out the joy of living. You know the power of shame. And yet the only power that can displace and uproot the power of shame is the power of a gospel that delivers us from shame. Paul knows this. We're delivered from the just judgment of God. We're delivered from the terror and alienation of shame. And we're delivered from living tossed to and fro by the evil powers of this world. Maybe you have a hard time imagining the just judgment of God. Maybe you can, you've, you've numbed yourself to shame. But what we cannot forget and what the world never lets us lose sight of is the brokenness of our world. The brokenness of evil powers that seem to toss us to and fro that we seem to be caught up in, whether it's natural disaster cascading on natural disaster or it's a pandemic or it's death or it's mortality or it's corruption or it's brokenness and systems of power. It is very easy for us to see that the world is not as it should be. And the only thing that can deliver us from being constrained trapped, chained to the brokenness of the world is the good news of the gospel. See, this is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed because he knows the power of the gospel. Because he knows the power of the gospel. He knows that we're born into this world longing to be delivered from the shame that alienates us from God's judgment against sin, from the sense that we are controlled and tossed around by the brokenness of the world. And let me tell you why this is such good news. 
Because it's not just good news that God delivers, it's good news that God delivers every kind of person. That's what's so great about the good news of the gospel, is that it doesn't matter who you are, where you're coming from, what you've done, the gospel is good news for you. This is what Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? What's it say? To everyone. To everyone who believes, the gospel is good news. To everyone who believes, who needs the gospel? And who is the gospel for? Everyone. Everyone. You have never met somebody who did not need to hear the gospel. There has never been a day where you did not need to hear the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, is that for all people, in all time, in all places, the message is the same. God has done the great work so that you might experience deliverance, so that you might experience salvation. Because of what God has done and is doing in the gospel, anyone who believes can get in on this. It's not a privileged club. It's not an elite group of people, right? I I remember I was showing up uh, a number of years ago, my father convinced me to do a Spartan race. Um, not my cup of tea, um, but he convinced me to go and do it. And when we showed up, uh, I, I, I was looking at the people next to us, and uh, they were all, uh, they looked like they had their stuff together. Okay? They looked like they belonged at a Spartan race, and they were like leagues beyond us. And I started noticing they had a, a, a different little placard on than ours. And so I turned to them and said, am I at the right race? And they said, well, this is the under 30 competition race nationally. And I said, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. And they said, it doesn't look like it. <laughs> and I thought, man, okay, that's, I mean, thank you for your honesty. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of slowly, me and my father, we recuse ourselves and we found the appropriate race to run in. And here's the reality. The gospel is not like that. God doesn't meet us at the door and say, I'm not quite sure that you're supposed to be here. How did you get let in? You don't look like you run with all these other races. You don't look fit to do this. God receives us as we are and through the gospel transforms us into what he calls us to be. He doesn't block us there. He doesn't ask for a special admission ticket. He doesn't ask for VIP standing. And Paul says it's the good news for everyone who believes. And then he says this, and this feels like a little bit of a record scratch. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? So he says the gospel is the good news for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's Paul talking about? Is this a privileged relationship? Is this the exact opposite of what I've just spoken to you, of what Paul seems to say? No, what Paul's saying is the good news is rooted in Israel's story. It's rooted in the story of the Jewish people. They were the first audience and proclaimers of the news. But it was always intended to go to the ends of the earth. The Greek here is used as a stand-in for everyone that's not Jewish. Paul is saying, listen, the good news came to the people of Israel, and through the people of Israel, it went to the whole world. This is good news. It wasn't supposed to start and stop with Israel. It was supposed to start with Israel and go everywhere. And go everywhere for every kind of person. Let me tell you something. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of who you think you are, regardless of what you think you've done, God's power to transform our lives in the gospel has never met a door that it can't open, a wound that it can't heal, a sin that it can't forgive, a shame that it can't cover. That's the good news of the gospel, is that it is the power of God and nothing, nothing can stop it. Nothing can thwart it. Some of you, 
week in and week out, continue to come believing that God's power is limited on your faithfulness. Some of you believe that the Christian life that God is inviting you into is really about what you can do for God. But it's not. The good and liberating news of the gospel is fundamentally about what God has done for us and Jesus And there is no freedom, there is no gospel boldness until we realize that God is not hedging his bets with his people. He's not waiting to see how you will fail or to keep the tally count of all the ways you failed already. That in Jesus Christ, all of that is forgiven, all of the future is forgiven, and you're welcomed into fellowship that's unending. That's good news. That's good news. What do you think that God keeps holding on to in Jesus Nothing. Nothing. It's deliverance for good forever. And at the center of Paul's message is this good news that's for everyone. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But why? Why is the gospel the good news for salvation? Why is it the power of God? Because the gospel supplies the one thing that you and I desperately need and we can't get it anywhere else. The gospel supplies the one thing that you and I need, and we can't get it anywhere else. Let me tell you, if you spend your whole life obtaining everything, but you don't get this one thing, when you appear before God, you will be left with nothing. That's what Paul is saying. The gospel supplies the one thing that if you get everything else, but this one thing, you end up with nothing. And if you get this one thing and have nothing, you have everything. This is what it is. And what is it? Verse 17. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is the one thing that we need that we do not have and we can't get it anywhere else? It is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Do you know what the righteousness of God is? Because the phrase sounds Christian, it sounds like something you'd read in the Bible, but it, it can be easy for us to just kind of gloss past it. Of course, yes, the righteousness of God. This phrase is considered to be one of the most technical and complex phrases in the New Testament. There's really three ways that we can look at this phrase. The first is that righteousness of God is the righteous standing that God gives. It's his gift of righteousness. That's the first way you could interpret this. That this righteousness from God is the righteousness that God gives to those who place their faith in Jesus. That's the first way. This is a righteousness as gift. Okay. The second way is that it is the character of God. This righteousness of God is the character of God. Okay. It's saying something about who God is. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. God promised he would send a savior. He was faithful to that promise. And this righteousness of God, we can say that God is righteous. Why? Because he was faithful to his promises. So the second way is thinking about righteousness as God's character. So righteousness is God's gift. Righteousness is God's character. And then the third way is righteousness as God's standard. Righteousness is God's standard. This is, this is the idea that righteousness is what God expects all of us to be. He expects all of us to be righteous, right? So the gospel reveals God's standard, 
And we are to live in that standard. We are to live in a way that reflects the good news of the gospel. And while this is an incredibly complex verse, with these three options in front of us, I'll tell you this. Paul is a master of clarity. When he wants to be specific, he's more specific than any other writer in the New Testament. And it is not coincidental that this phrase is broad. The reason that it's broad, I believe, with other commentators is because Paul doesn't want us to pick one of those options. He wants us to see it as all three. That the righteousness of God is God's gift to us in Jesus. The righteousness of God is God's character. And the righteousness of God is God's holy standard. Paul is wanting us to see that the good news of the gospel, it reveals that we are desperately in need of righteousness and only God can provide it. It it reveals that God is good and keeps his promises. And it reveals God's better way of living in the world, the way of kingdom righteousness, the way of walking in holiness in the midst of a broken world. You see, the righteousness of God is what we desperately need. We need it, and we can receive it because God is righteous, because he keeps his promises, because God is not a liar. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to give us the gift of righteousness, to give us what we could never obtain on our own, which is righteous standing before God. That's that free gift of grace that we receive by faith. And that having received that free gift, he invites us to live in his holy way, in his righteous ways in the world. You see, when Paul says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, he means the gospel reveals God's saving power. It reveals his holy way, and it reveals his faithful nature on display in the world. We desperately need the righteousness of God. Apart from it, there is no salvation. You remember the Wizard of Oz? What's the tin man want? What? He wants a heart. The tin man wants a heart, right? He wants to be alive, right? He can move around. The tin man can do a lot of things. He's animated. He's living in the world. He wants a heart. He wants a heart so that he can feel and love and worship and be fully alive. He doesn't want a half-life. Without the righteousness of God, we are living a half-life. We may be walking around, but we are hollow, And when we stand before God, what will be left is nothing because it's a thin substance with no bearing because sin so radically emaciates and strip mines our soul of any substance. And what the righteousness of God does is it takes away the hollowness of our life and it puts within it a heart made alive with the good news of Jesus. Some of you, some of us, have grown numb to just living in that half-life. To living before God, fully prepared to know that we do not have what God demands. And we are terrified because if the mask of religion, if the mask of pretending gets pulled away, what will be left? Let me tell you what will be left. There will be grace left. When God begins to pull away the facade of our own righteousness, the facade of our independence from him, do you know what he provides? He provides by grace through faith in Jesus the righteousness that we need. And let me tell you, God cannot begin to transform your false self. God cannot begin to transform all of the shadows that you want to hide behind. Only when we come to him 
through the power of conviction, through the power of the gospel, can he begin to radically transform our lives, delivering us from the just judgment of God, delivering us from the alienation of shame, delivering us from the brokenness of the world by providing for us the one thing that he has that we can't get anywhere else, which is the righteousness of God in Jesus. So how do you receive that? How do you receive the righteousness of God? What does Paul say? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the last thing. How do we receive the gospel? We receive the gospel by faith. We receive the gospel by faith. It begins from faith. But whose faith? God's faith. God's faithfulness. The gospel doesn't begin with you and me. The gospel begins with God. This is what Paul was trying to tell us with the righteousness of God. The gospel doesn't begin with you and me. The gospel begins with a faithful God, a God who keeps his promises, a God who said the world is broken and I will send somebody to remake the world. That's where the gospel begins, with God. But it leads to us, our faith, our faith, our faith in who? A faithful God, a faithful God who keeps his promises, who keeps covenant. Right? This is the God that we place our faith in. And what does it lead to? It leads to a life marked by living righteously, by faith. By living a life that's faithful. Why? Because we have trusted in the faithfulness of God. God gives us the gift of faith so that we might give our whole selves back to God. To believe the gospel. To receive this good news is to have a head-on collision with grace. You don't walk away from that unchanged. You don't walk away from that unchanged. And this is what Paul was inviting the church in Rome to experience. And it's what I'm inviting us to experience today. Today, God is inviting us, through the preaching of his word, to do one of three things. Okay? One of three things with this good news of the gospel, with this power of God. The first is to receive the righteousness of Christ for the first time. I am not, I am not unconvinced that some of us may delay and may have been delaying and may have been keeping God on hold for the course of our lives. And God has brought us here because he wants you to hear the good news that if you have waited, he has been pursuing you. And he's brought you to a moment today where he is inviting you in to receive the righteousness of Christ for the first time. That may be where you're at. You may hear this message of good news living, of the power of God, and genuinely believe, I want that, I have never experienced that. And Paul is saying, and God is saying through his word, thousands of years later, come to me, come to me and allow me to provide what you desperately need and can get nowhere else. The second thing that it's inviting us to do is to confess where we have chosen to reject God's righteous way. The gospel is not just the good news that we deal with God and that we no longer have to deal with him. God is inviting us to live a righteous life having been given the life of Christ's righteousness. And some of us, we have received Christ's righteousness, and now we want nothing to do with walking in God's righteous ways. And God is pulling us in. He's helping us realize that there are areas of our life where we have said, no, I don't want your righteousness. I don't want your righteous ways. I want to do my own thing on my own terms. God's inviting us to confess those places and to receive healing and forgiveness. The third, 
God is inviting us to go into the world and to be unashamed with the gospel. To have no hesitation with the gospel. Why? Because there are people, even if they're not among us today, there are people in our neighborhoods who presently stand under the just judgment of God. And I'm telling you, church, I know that you don't want to hear that. I know that it is hard to believe that. And I know it's hard to walk as a people in our neighborhoods uh, loving and living and caring for people and at the same time praying that they will experience salvation. But I beg you, like Paul begs you, like he'll say in Romans 9, 3, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of those who do not know him. Paul is saying this. He is so captivated by the power of the gospel that he's saying, how could I not give this to people who I know and love and who have not yet been invited to experience the deliverance that they need? This is what God is inviting us to to place our faith in Jesus for the first time, to confess where we have chosen to not walk in faithfulness and to go out as a people unashamed with the good news of the gospel. Because the reality is this, we will all stand before God one day and we will either be holding nothing or we will be holding the righteousness of Christ. There is no other option It doesn't matter what your accomplishments are, what you have saved, what you have gained, the life that you have lived. One day, each and every one of us will stand before God and we will either be holding nothing to give him or the righteousness of Jesus. With the righteousness of Christ, we have everything. And without it, we have nothing. We have nothing. This is radical news. And if it's true, It means that the whole world belongs to God and everything in it, including you and I. And it means that our life is lived for a singular purpose, which is to magnify the God who has saved us with his gospel and tell as many people as we can about the good news. Even if it costs us everything, in the end, we get Christ and he is all. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. And it is good news indeed. And I pray, God, God, I pray that if there are some here who have not yet believed upon the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God, would you bring the power of the gospel to their hearts? I pray for us who sometimes feel ashamed and hesitant with the gospel because of the social cost or the weirdness or the awkwardness, compel us with an urgency and a fervency, God, with the good news of the gospel, that we might be gripped by what has gripped us, that we might proclaim what you have done in our lives. And God, for those who feel like they have dealt with Jesus and now choose to walk, Outside of your ways, God, I pray that you would convict by the power of the Spirit, that it would lead to confession, and that all their fears, that shame will be their gift, that you would whisper to them, the gift is always grace. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.